Hi, you're listening to the Yale Anesthesiology Podcast. Make sure to visit our show website so that you can take advantage of the links of the papers that will be mentioned during this recording. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Antonio Gonzalez, and today I'm thrilled to present our next guest. Dr. Carlos Delgado is an associate professor and the associate director of the Obstetric Anesthesia Program at the University of Washington. His clinical and research interests include obstetric anesthesia, labor pain relief, high-risk pregnancies, and the role of simulation in medical training. He's an active member of SOAP and has an active role in the membership value and annual meeting planning committees. Within SOAP, he has contributed to the education of community hospital providers via the online SOAP fundamental course, and he's here with us today to discuss an article published in Current Anesthesiology Reports titled The Current Role of General Anesthesia for Cesarean Delivery. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Delgado. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very excited to be here. Your article mentions that general anesthesia is actually mainly reserved for urgent and emergent uh, cases because its use has been associated with higher maternal morbidity and mortality. Luckily, general anesthesia is safer nowadays. What do you think has contributed to this increase in safety? I guess it's uh, it, uh, the reason is compound. It's uh, first the fact that that we are definitely getting better at doing neuraxial techniques and definitely we're not doing as many general anesthetics. Therefore, you're not going to see a lot of morbidity associated with it. But the second, specifically, when we do uh, use general anesthesia in the obstetric population, um, the introduction of supraglottic devices in the late 80s, early 90s, and now the widespread um, use of um, video laryngoscopy has definitely increased the safety because a lot of the time that morbidity mortality came from failed attempts at intermeeting the airway. Certainly, there is no denying that neuraxial anesthesia is considered the gold standard anesthetic for cesarean delivery because of its track record of safety. What makes neuraxial anesthesia safer than general anesthesia? I think um, neuraxial anesthesia is the perfect combination because if you were to ask pregnant women what they hope to achieve uh, during their delivery, they of course want to be part of the experience, but they also want an experience that has no pain, and and they also want to to avoid uh, pain after the delivery. So with neuraxial anesthesia, we're able to keep them very comfortable throughout the procedure. We're able to put medication in their uh, intrathecal space that hopefully is going to control pain. In addition to this, by doing a appropriate regional anesthesia, we are avoiding the risk of having to induce general anesthesia. And as we already mentioned, if we induce general anesthesia, we're going to have we're going to have to be in phase of the risk of having a failed intubation, or if not a failed intubation, a potentially uh, decompensation from the physiology of pregnancy. So there's higher risk of hypoxemia, higher um, risk of, of a reduction in your uh, functional residual capacity because you have an increased metabolic rate, both coming from mom and baby. And there's, of course, the latent risk of aspiration. So if you combine the advantages of the mom being awake and, and, and calm and, and, and with adequate pain control during the procedure and afterwards, and the fact that we're avoiding general anesthesia, that makes it uh, much, much safer and the gold standard. Yeah, I think that that's actually a, an amazing summary. Thank you so much, because I think you hit a very important point, which is like we are actually addressing the mom's desire to be awake and be part of the delivery, as well as increasing safety. As you mentioned, we've gotten so much better with it. Now, 
you know, we always mention that intubating the patient is it's very concerning to anesthesiologists. In your article, you highlight a finding from a paper by Jill Meyer publishing Anesthesiology 2007 that addresses the following question. Does intubation pose the highest risk for, for the parturient undergoing a cesarean delivery under general anesthesia? Uh, this is an excellent question, and that's an interesting point, and I always try to, to drill it down when I'm discussing this topic because most people are very, very concerned with that initial part, that whenever you make the decision to convert or if you have to just start with general anesthesia, everyone is very scared about intubation. And as I mentioned, with the tools um, that we have nowadays, that intubating process should be pretty safe. But a lot of the time, people tend to forget that most uh, of the complications can arise at the end of the procedure when you are emerging the patient, uh, when you're extubating the patient. A lot of this morbidity and mortality can come from um, from um, spaces in which you are um, you have successfully extubated your patient, and then they're still under the effects of general anesthesia, and potentially they don't have adequate pain control, and then someone starts giving extra uh, fentanyl, morphine, any type of opiate medication in the recovery unit, and if you don't have adequate supervision for those patients that just came out of general anesthesia and are now receiving intravenous opiates because, of course, we skip the intrathecal opiate that's going to provide good pain control, those are the patients that can experience respiratory depression, and those are the patients that will experience mortality afterwards. So, so it's not only the intubation, but you also need to take into account the extubation and emergence period. I agree 100% with you that that study from Jill Meyer, it's a key to highlight that it doesn't end with the intubation process. It's actually continuity of care of the patient. And we need to make sure that the patient is safe throughout their entire um, admission into our labor and delivery unit. Um, particularly in the areas that we are not necessarily directly involved with the patient care, as in the post-operative um, uh, units. Now, I don't think we can pass the opportunity to highlight a more recent study published in Anesthesiology 2022 titled Frequency and Risk Factors for Difficult Intubation in Women Undergoing General Anesthesia for Cesarean Delivery. The study demonstrated that the incidence of difficult intubation was about 2% and that of failed intubation was 0.1%. And the, the most risk factors associated with difficult intubation were not obstetric in nature. The authors conclude that we should continue to be vigilant about the possibility of difficult intubation in women undergoing general anesthesia for cesarean delivery and early neuraxial placement for patients at risk for cesarean delivery may help minimize the need for intubation, particularly for those patients with a predicted difficult airway. Now, with that in mind, can we predict who will receive general anesthesia? Yeah, I mean, of course, there's a lot of situations in which we are not going to be able to successfully anticipate every single case that will require general anesthesia. But in, in general, there's a couple of conditions that should uh, make us a little bit more aware and a little bit more prepared if that is the case. So patients that, uh, of course, are uh, going to have any type of placental problem, placental uh, uh, bleeding problem, be it a previa, and then they're bleeding in the anapartum, um 
section of your hospital, patients that have rupture of membranes at a preterm time that have breach presentation that are always at risk of cord prolapse, patients that have been admitted for any type of vaginal bleeding in which placental abruption is a potential cause, patients that have had non-reassuring fetal heart rates, all these patients that are always at the risk of having an emergent delivery and any patient that has the risk of having an emergent delivery has a latent risk of receiving general anesthesia. It is um, important to note that uh, earlier gestational ages, because of the, the, some of the conditions that I already mentioned, are, are a high risk of receiving general anesthesia because these are usually women that are in the antepartum units for a long time for whatever it is the reason. So they normally do not have an neuraxial catheter in place. And if something were to change briskly and require immediate delivery, our only option is going to be um, general anesthesia. Now, if we move into the realm of labor and delivery, uh, of course, having an epidural catheter that is working adequately uh, is a protective factor against general anesthesia. So we need to be extremely careful um, and we need to be very, very aware of that progress during labor and uh, how patients endorsing their pain control. Um, we frequently here at my institution have a standardized every two hours we're checking women, we're making sure that the blocks are symmetric, that everything is fine because we do know the literature supports that when you need to give more than two bolus or top-ups during labor, those are catheters that likely are not working for labor and will definitely not work when it's time to convert for an anesthetic experience. So those catheters that are failing should be replaced earlier on. There's another um, important um, factor that sadly we also need to take into account in which women receive general anesthesia and, and ethnic and socioeconomic disparities do contribute a little bit uh, to uh, an increased risk of general anesthesia. Well, I, I think you you hit so many good points. And I think that, you know, having an idea of which are the patients that may uh, receive general anesthesia, as you know, as you mentioned, uh, we won't be able to predict all of them, but we do know uh, there are certain characteristics that make a patient prone to having general anesthesia. And, and this is where communication with the obstetrician becomes so important. And we should recommend an early epidural for those patients that we think are at increased risk for cesarean delivery. Also, you mentioned another great point, and is the unfortunate event that uh, racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic disparities contribute to the use of general anesthesia. Would you please expand on this? Yeah, so there's evidence that uh, privately insured women are less likely to receive general anesthesia if you compare it to women that are publicly insured. Um, and the same if you are to look at race, black women are more likely to receive general anesthesia uh, compared to white women, even when you exclude those that had uh, received neuraxial beforehand. I think at this point, um, we are aware that as providers, we have certain bias in how we provide care. Um, we're still, you know, trying to 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 figure out the the reasons that might explain why, you know, race and socioeconomic class could impact delivery of care. But what I do think is that if you, in your institution you have a standardized approach on how to manage an epidural catheter that is failing, if you have a standardized approach of communicating, as you mentioned earlier promptly with uh, your labor and delivery nurses and your obstetrics team, I think 
as you standardize and communicate better, you're probably limiting the amount of uh, all this kind of like implicit biases we'll have into into uh, leading into unnecessary general anesthesia for uh, these populations that are underadvantaged. Yeah, I agree 100 percent. I just completed a, a podcast with uh, Dr. Allison Lee from Columbia University, and we discussed the role of algorithms and how algorithms and um, as you said, policies and standard of care can actually help us reduce uh, racial disparities. So, you know, definitely more research is needed to help us understand, uh, you know, the these events of increased risk of general anesthesia for our um, minorities. Now, besides the complications related to airway, what other complications are related to the use of general anesthesia? There was an article published a few years ago uh, in anesthesiology that addressed the, the use of unnecessary uh, general anesthesia, like adverse events associated with general anesthesia by uh, Landau, Lee, and Guglielminelli. So we can see a higher chance of developing surgical site infection, a higher chance of developing venous thrombosis, uh, higher uh, blood loss during the procedure and the potential need for blood transfusion. We do see drops in, in hemoglobin in patients that receive general anesthesia uh, in a higher degree versus one, the ones that did not. And of course, if you are inducing general anesthesia, but you're not giving full general anesthesia, which tends to be the case sometimes because people are still very scared about giving general anesthesia, there's always the risk of intraoperative awareness that could lead to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, general anesthesia has also been linked with higher chances of developing postpartum depression and worse neonatal outcomes. Of course, that is a little bit confounded because we do know that those patients that have fetuses at risk and we do know that patients that have early gestational age can have a higher chance of needing general anesthesia. And of course, that might be impacting how that fetus is going to uh, transition into, into the post-uterine world. But, uh, but it's important to note that neonatal outcomes have been affected by, by higher chances uh, or higher uh, usage of general anesthesia. With that long list of uh, complications associated with the uh, use of general anesthesia, um, it's not surprising that as a subspecialty, we place a lot of importance on uh, highlighting the, the, the use of neuraxial anesthesia, mainly to avoid general anesthesia. In your article, you mentioned some benchmark metrics. Would you please elaborate on these metrics? Yeah, there's recommendations that that you know organizations and and of course your own institutions might might even you know set for providers. And if you look at recommendations from our North American Society, the Society of Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology, we want to keep the percentage of uh, general anesthesia as less than five percent of your total practice which is um, in accordance with what the Royal College of Anesthetists in the UK uh, recommends, which is also less than 5%. And then um, they're a little bit more specific, saying less than 5% for urgent procedures and one less than 1% for elective cases, because we do all can agree that if we were to have an elective cesarean delivery, uh, our most common approach, unless there's an active contraindication to neuraxial, is going to be neuraxial anesthesia. And the risk of failure of your plain kind of like spinal anesthetic or combined spinal anesthetic is very low. So the, the Royal College of Anesthetists in the UK for elective cesarean deliveries wants to keep that number in less than 1%. Yeah, I, I think that 
there is definitely a role here uh, for these metrics. Event, uh, you know, essentially these metrics should reflect how good we are at providing neuraxial anesthesia. Now, do you see any downside to the implementation of these benchmarks? I think you know establishing rigid measurements for anything in life, and especially in medicine can be counterproductive because if, if people lose kind of like uh, um, the the goal that we should have in mind, which is to provide adequate and, and, and kind of like the best type of patient care, um, if we're trying to stick to having less than 5% of general anesthetics, we might be overdoing the intraoperative sedation and maybe potentially be exposing women that have uncontrolled pain during a cesarean section or in the case of an urgent delivery with 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 a pre-existing epidural catheter that is not working appropriately, we are exposing them at, 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 uh, to developing uh, intraoperative pain that could lead to uh, postoperative pain and postoperative uh, mental uh, mental health disorders. So I, I think. Um, we need to understand that if we can avoid general anesthesia and we can predict and, and we can prevent uh, prevent it, that's fantastic. But in some situations, general anesthesia will be indicated and that will speak to our need to be aware of the tools that we have and the training that we need to provide the safest general anesthesia to those patients that, that, that need it. Yeah, I agree 100%. And, and I think that these... Uh benchmarks are well intended but as as you mentioned they may have that downsize of uh creating fear or pressure to comply with these metrics and may uh make us shy away from using general anesthesia when it's actually needed um i just recorded a podcast with susanna stanford a patient who suffered intraoperative pain and she utilized a saying that i really like that goes when a measure becomes a target it ceases to be a good measure um, and again, it goes back to the fact that once we create this metric, it may create the fear of doing the right thing just to stay within the, the metrics. Now, in your article, you mentioned the use of a rapid sequence spinal uh, technique for those cases needing urgent cesarean delivery without neuraxial on board. Would you please explain to the audience what is a rapid sequence spinal? Yeah, absolutely. So rapid sequence spinal is a spinal anesthetic for cesarean delivery in which you're uh, going to omit the parts that are not fundamental to the procedure um, and uh, and then hopefully expedite. And then there's evidence that shows that uh, the people that do know how to do this technique appropriately can achieve good levels of, uh, of anesthesia for a uh, cesarean under regional. Um, there's a couple of things that that I usually uh, talk about this with my trainees here, which is um, even though I would want everyone, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, to receive um, opioid medication in the atrethical space to be able to manage pain control during and afterwards, if if my goal is to provide anesthetic level for a cesarean section, a local anesthetic should be enough. And in fact, I had the opportunity to train uh, abroad and, and where I train, I was also exposed to a couple of, of, of instances in which the, the my supervising provider was very old school and they would do general, uh, they would do regional anesthesia with just bupivacaine and patients did fine. So uh, of course, I'm not going to uh, 
push this to become the standard, but in certain situations, if that's the only thing you can put in your spinal uh, dose, that would be enough for a cesarean section. So going back to kind of like the whole technique of, of, of like a rapid sequence spinal, you're probably going to have the patient in the lateral position. If that's your normal position, that's fine for a lot of kind of like uh, our trainees and in our learning institutions, they routinely place the patient in the sitting position. So we're trying to minimize the amount of positioning that we need to do through the patient uh, before we do the block. We're gonna do a quick kind of like one, um, uh, one swab uh, antiseptic cleaning of the field before we begin. There's not going to be need to place sterile fields. Uh, if you can do your local anesthetic, you will, will be doing your local anesthetic to infiltrate the skin. And then the idea is that the introduction of uh, introducer and spinal needle is going to happen within kind of like the same, uh, the same approach. Uh, if you were able to, uh, to put in your spinal dose, uh, local anesthetic, plus your short and long acting opioid medication, fantastic. But if you're kind of like scrambling and you're just, you know, uh, trying to set up your tray really fast to provide this rapid sequence spinal, um, you only do um, um, local anesthetic to minimize the amount of time that you will spend, you know, uh, drawing up medications in your, in your small syringes to be able to account for those doses. And then once the spinal is placed, I, I am a little bit <laughs> aggressive with positioning because I want that level to set uh, rising uh, at a faster rate. And then I give them a go to start um, doing Foley and prepping. Now, the, the whole benefit of the rapid sequence spinal, um, it, it is that you can actually do this very quickly while avoiding general anesthesia. Now, some providers may argue that nothing is really faster than general anesthesia. And... At the end of the day, we usually are performing urgent cases because of fetal concerns. So how does how does the use of neuraxial anesthesia versus general anesthesia compares um, in terms of fetal outcomes, particularly for these urgent cases? Yeah, so you are correct. And definitely general anesthesia tends to give us the faster starts of the case but it is associated with poor neonatal outcomes. Um, there's a good study from 2008 by Palmer published in Anesthesia in which patients that uh, received general anesthesia, the neonates uh, born after the procedure had lower APGAR scores at the five uh, minute mark. So definitely there's a little bit of, of impact on, on the APGAR scores. Now, of course, you, you may argue that if there is an adequate um, pediatric dream around, they should be able to manage these low APGAR scores and they should be able to provide the adequate neonatal resuscitation that, that the neonates require. But I'm always very mindful because as I already mentioned, we're normally using general anesthesia to deliver those babies that are already uh, pretty sick in utero or that are about to experience or have just experienced a pretty traumatic event, be it you know placental bleeding or a core prolapse. So even though there is a pediatric team around to deal with the resuscitation efforts, if I can avoid exposing them to general anesthesia, I will try my best to complete the case under regional. So um, that, that, that is great. And, and I think it's, it's amazing that the rapid sequence will be able to achieve that. Um, now, what are the consequences of our increased success rate of neuraxial for cesarean deliveries and the decline in use of general anesthesia? So 
I guess, I mean, consequences is I do think that we're having happier patients that are able to stay awake and, 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 and we have, uh, we, we have developed, um, techniques and we have developed, um, dosing strategies and, and, and analgesic alternatives in which we're able to provide great experience for patients that are having neurational analgesia. The, Potentially negative effect of us being so successful with neuroactually is, as I mentioned before, there are some circumstances in which we cannot avoid general anesthesia. If you have the coagulopathic patient, you're not going to be able to do general anesthesia. And because we don't do as many general anesthetics, the training that our future anesthesiologists have uh, have is reduced. So um, how do we how do we how do we deal with this, of course? So I think um, it's certainly not by starting to perform more general anesthetics, but being very aware of the need of constant education and simulation. I think nowadays simulation in, uh, in, in, in medicine has uh, advanced to uh, places in which it is quite realistic. So we, we, for example, in our institution routinely at the beginning of the rotation and sometimes at the end of the rotation run simulations on general anesthesia. And then we go through all the, all the different uh, key points and recommendations on how to safely do it. Uh, I think we should be uh, very aware of the tools that we uh, have uh, at our hands to provide adequate patient care. We, of course, are going to have video laryngoscopes readily available in all our labor and delivery rooms. And we should also constantly practice and review the algorithms for difficult airway um, approaches in the pregnant patient not forgetting that the supraglottic device has been fundamental and, and, and going back to the paper you quoted by, by Dr. Reale in um, 2022 anesthesiology, most of those cases or all of those cases that had a failed intubation uh, were successfully rescued with a supraglottic de device. So I think um, less training is a reality because we don't use it as much, but we should be very emphatic in simulation, education, and the review of the guidelines on how to manage those um, situations. In this case, difficult uh, airway in the obstetric patient. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a great point. I think that definitely um, we have become so comfortable with neuraxial anesthesia that we've become slightly uncomfortable with the use of general anesthesia. And as you mentioned, I think the key is to keep on the education. Uh, we shouldn't allow our residents to go go uh, and graduate without having a general anesthetic experience, even if it means that that experience happens under a simulation setting. So thank you so much for, for um, giving all this uh, information about the current use of general anesthesia. I would like to end this podcast with uh, Dr. Delgado, Delgado's top five recommendations to decrease the unnecessary use of general anesthesia. Okay, that's a good one. So five recommendations. I would say number one is um, anticipation and, and a good uh, uh, preoperative assessment of patients. A good preoperative assessment of patients that could even happen even before they're admitted in those patients that we anticipate are going to need general anesthesia or that are, are hesitant to receive an actual block. I think a preoperative consultation with the anesthesia team 
is going to be fundamental to identify, to explain the alternatives and identify any potential barriers to the safe provision of, uh, of obstetric anesthesia, be it neuraxial or be it under general anesthesia. Um, I think um, number two is adequate team communication with your labor and delivery nurses and your obstetric team. You always want to be aware of patients that are at a risk of needing an emergent delivery. Uh, we should try for it not to take us by surprise. Every time you get to the labor and delivery floor, there's a couple of patients that even though they're not active, you can anticipate and you should always think about, okay, I need to ask the obstetrician, how are the biophysical profiles or the fetal monitorings daily looking? At, are any point going to be telling me, hey, we need to deliver this patient? And if that is the case, I should be prepared for that. I would say third is when we have um, a patient that is requesting pain control, I would encourage anyone on labor and delivery, be it the anesthesiologist, labor and delivery nurse or obstetrician, um, to offer neuraxial anesthesia as, a, uh, a, a, as an option because, of course, having an epidural catheter in place um, will likely reduce the risk of, of converting into general anesthesia. Of course, we're not going to go against the patient's wishes and we will respect them, but, uh, you know, this active encouragement is going to be great. Once the epidural uh, catheter is in place, this is my fourth recommendation, is we should be extremely good at following up on those catheters, making sure that those catheters are working, doing... Uh, assessment at frequent intervals to make sure that they are symmetric, that they are providing the right uh, type of pain control. And we do know, and then this is kind of like uh, the key information, if someone requires more than two top-ups during labor, you should consider potentially replacing that catheter, especially if there's something not going great with that labor. And number five, your OR should always be ready for general anesthesia, and this means that you should always, you know, have your anesthesia machine checked. You should have the tools and uh, that are available, so you should always have a supraglottic device, and you should always have a video laryngoscope. Because if you do need to convert general anesthesia, you want to make it as safe as possible. And in this population, you know, make your first approach your best approach, and that is something that you will be uh, doing by utilizing video uh, video laryngoscopy. Well, thank you so much. That was some great five recommendations to decrease the unnecessary use of general anesthesia. I really appreciate the time that you have spent in this podcast uh, teaching our audience about the use of the current role of general anesthesia. I think, again, we shouldn't shy away from doing general anesthesia when absolutely needed. We definitely need to promote education for the use of general anesthesia, as you mentioned. Um, again, thank you so much for being here and uh, giving us some of your time and knowledge. Uh, really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you so much for the invitation and happy to come back in the future. <laughs>